0: This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region that's covered by RFA and the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English language service. How are you doing, Paul?
1: Well, I'm doing great. And as you know, Matt, this podcast is the highlight of my week.
0: <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. It's also towards the end of the week, which is another highlight of the week, I think. So what are you been up to this week? What's been keeping you busy?
1: Well, another heavy week. And of course, the hunger situation in North Korea that we covered on this podcast last week has not gotten gone away at all. But the main thrust was Hong Kong and the continuing acts of Chinese repression on civil society there, whether it be educators, journalists, other politicians and activists.
0: It does seem like a slow-moving train wreck, the erosion of, uh, of freedoms in Hong Kong.
1: Yeah. And uh, Southeast Asia is also uh, keeping everyone busy on that front. What, what's the top Stories this week, Matt.
0: Well, as you know, I'm always keenly watching what happens with Laos. And we had a story this week about environmental and other activists urging Thailand not to buy electricity from the planned Luang Prabang Dam. Because they say that that would violate Thailand's treaty obligations because it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site nearby that could be affected by the dam. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Well indeed it's it's pretty frightening to think that they would risk building a dam what 20 odd kilometers from uh, what is their essentially their Athens or you know their Kyoto the 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 crown jewel of, of the Lao uh, historic monuments and tourist assets
0: Yeah that's a good way of putting it but it looks like the dam's going to happen So this week I will be looking later at the deepening covid crisis in Myanmar where military authorities are really harming and not helping efforts to combat the virus. I'll speak to a journalist in Yangon about the difficulties people are facing getting medical supplies, especially oxygen, and how coffins are piling up at crematoria in the city. But first, we're returning to the plight of the Uyghur minority in China. This week, the U.S. Senate passed legislation to ban imports from Xinjiang in response to concerns about the grave persecution of Uyghurs, including forced labor. Now, if this legislation is eventually signed into law, it will definitely escalate the U.S. response to the human rights crisis in that region. So
1: over to you, Paul. Well, thanks, Matt. And today I'm asking RFA Uyghur Service Director, Alim Setov, to explain the significance and possible impact of this rapid succession of developments, of which the Senate legislation is just one piece and what will come next as Washington increasingly moves from lofty rhetoric to concrete action, which, as you know, doesn't always happen on human rights issues in China. First off, thanks, Alim, for making time for us in what I know has been a busy week in a busy month of coverage. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me back again. Our pleasure. There couldn't be a better time to discuss this issue following all of the events that happened. In a little more than six months since Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued the genocide declaration on China's treatment of Uyghurs, a lot of things have happened. Indeed, a lot of things have happened just in the last week. Can you summarize the highlights for our listeners who may not be following every detail?
2: Absolutely. Just last week, Secretary Blinken met with uh, six Uyghur camp survivors and Uyghur human rights activists and listened to their horrific stories, of course, and the legitimate requests of the Uyghur human rights activists and the china obviously not happy with admitting then uh, just this week we saw that secretary blinken uh, state department and uh, and the uh, us uh, department of homeland security all issued business advisory to us companies uh, to be careful when it, it it sources supplies from the xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region due to forced uh, labor implications and also just this week again uh, the international uh, Religious Freedom Summit kicked off on Wednesday, and uh, on Wednesday, we saw a number of keynote speakers, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and uh, also the U.S. aid administrator Samantha Powers, uh, and all talked about Uyghur genocide, and a Uyghur camp survivor Tursnay Ziaudan also talked about her horrific experience, including the gang rape, you know to highlight the uh, tragedy that's ongoing uh, and impacting the Uyghur people in general. Uh, so a number of things happening. Actually, today, Secretary Blinken is meeting with uh, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and the Uyghur uh, attorney, Nuri Kelly, is vice chair of this commission. So I'm sure there have been some discussions about uh, the genocide and the Uyghur people's requests.
1: So, yeah, quite a quite a busy menu of things to happen in just one week. And they're, of course, build, they're building on things that have been happening throughout the year. And a lot of that has been focused on forced labor and tightening the scrutiny, uh, focusing on supply chain and products from companies from Xinjiang and abroad. So to me, it seems like the United States is moving from symbolic statements of support, which they would issue around the world, to concrete actions in a way that we haven't seen for past human rights crises. So how have these latest steps by Washington, whether it be the government or the Congress, because there's other measures in Congress, too, how are they being received by the leading Uyghur groups that we cover and, and talk to?
2: Yes, you're absolutely right, Paul. You know, uh, at the U.S. Congress just uh, uh, just two days ago, uh, for example, the Uyghur... Forced Labor Prevention Act was passed by the U.S. Senate. And the Uyghurs are obviously very excited. Just this week, again, the U.S. government uh, and also the European Union, they in concert issued the business advisory, not just for American companies, but for European companies as well, and also sanctioned some of the Chinese companies. And for the Uyghur community who have been suffering this genocide and crimes against humanity for the past four years, this is welcome news. Uh, the Uyghur leaders that we have interviewed, whether from World Uyghur Congress, Uyghur Human Rights Project or Campaign for Uyghurs or other Uyghur active groups, you know, they warmly welcome these measures taken by the U.S. and European governments so that at least you know, if the genocide is not sp- stopped at the moment, at least what they can do is to mitigate the damage, to stop the forced labor, to prevent uh, products made by Uyghur forced labor to come to American and European markets. So these are definitely welcome gestures for the Uyghur uh, diaspora community.
1: Mm. Now the primary mission of RFA at all of the language services, including Uyghur, is to get news from the outside world and news about their region to people who are who don't get it because the government blocks this information. So. Are the listeners and readers of RFA Uyghur service able to get some of this information? And are you aware of any reaction that you've had through comments or shares or social media remarks, anything like that?
2: And uh, as you know, Paul, uh, the Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region is uh, very much like China's North Korea. It's very hard to know what's happening there because of the genocide. China tried to keep uh, every information out. So it's Difficulty to find out the reactions of the Uyghurs, but we can see the reactions from the Chinese government on, for example, for Secretary Blinken's meeting with the Uyghur camp survivors. Just today, uh, the Chinese government basically uh, uh, complained about this meeting, you know, denouncing the meeting and also denouncing uh, U.S. business advisory uh, to American companies, whatnot, and also denounced the passage, Senate passage of the Uyghur forced labor prevention bill. Uh, So we can see from Chinese government reactions that China feels the pain of U.S. measures. And of course, China uh, uh, in its own media also uh, accused the U.S. government of trying to so-called destabilize uh, the Xinjiang region or spreading lies about Chinese government's policies in the region. So I think the Uyghur, our listeners, or the Uyghur people generally learn from uh, not just from our broadcast, I think from Chinese media as well. So, But sadly, uh, we can hardly get any feedback from them at the moment.
1: Well, sure, their safety has to matter in that case. But you are correct in my experience. Sometimes China's hyper overreaction to an issue and the way they go about it calls more attention to the issue than the origin, than originally existed, and they kind of shoot themselves in the foot with that. I've seen that time and again with these disputes. People didn't hear about it until start, China started jumping up and down about it. So yes. in a way, you're getting the information to the people, indirectly at least. So from Washington, we have a, the Senate bill, which will go through the process and go to the House and all of that. That's on forced labor, and that's a, that's very strong because that's that's basically guilty until proven innocent with forced labor out of out of Xinjiang. So yes. what steps are left? What are the next steps that follow this course of action? I'm thinking, for example, that China can easily move products around and disguise Uyghur-made or Xinjiang-made items as coming from, you know, Fujian province or something like that. So what's what further tightenings uh, are required to be effective as far as you understand?
2: Yes, you are absolutely right, Paul. China can obviously easily shift the cotton and whatnot products to other Chinese provinces, then export to the U.S. or any EU markets. And that's actually the exact question I asked from uh, the Customs and Border uh, Protection uh, just the last week when, when they held a press conference about uh, the new business advisory at the time. And uh, they're basically saying you know, they can track if it's a cotton or t- tomato and whatnot, it's like just human beings, they also have some sort of DNA, I guess. So the U.S. government, using their high tech, they can actually track where the product originated. So that's another way for them to block the entry, course of entry of the products made by potentially by the Uyghur slave or forced labor. And uh, I think uh, that is highly likely happening at the moment.
1: You mentioned in passing earlier that in response to when the U.S. issued the new tightened commerce list that the EU government had done the same in, the, in their own way. Do you get a sense now that both uh, the EU and now former member EU Britain, who has held you know, a tribunal on the Uyghur genocide, do you get a sense they're more actively following the U.S. direction in dealing with the Uyghur crisis?
2: I think so. Uh, with the election of uh, President Biden, uh, for the past five months we see uh president biden's administration reaching out to the european union uk canada australia and north korea uh, south korea sorry to all of its allies bring them on the same table and working together against the china china's challenge to the free world and at the same time the biden administration is pushing uh, uh against china with regard to the Uyghur genocide and uh, also asking America's European allies to be uh, on the same page. So that's why we saw the United States, Canada, UK, and the European Union on on that same day, just a month ago, sanctioned uh, Chinese government officials who are responsible for the atrocities that's happening against the Uyghur and other indigenous populations. And in addition to that, just the last week, we saw both the US and European Union in concert took measures against forced labor by issuing business advisory. And just yesterday, we saw uh, President Biden met with uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. They discussed their common strategy basically against China and how to uh, defend uh, the Western values of the free world. So we can see and more and more measures are being taken by the U.S. and European governments against China's rise, China's challenge towards the new global order established by the U.S.-led free world after the Second World War, war and also uh, pushing back against China's Uyghur genocide. So that's a welcome news for the Uyghur community.
1: Yeah, it's a big puzzle with lots of pieces. And one of the final one I want to touch on that we don't want to forget is that the clock is ticking down towards February 2022 and the Beijing Winter Olympic Games. There have been uh, calls to boycott for a long time, and there was, along with all the religious freedom events this week, there was also a protest in Washington and some cities against the Games. What's the latest in terms of uh, how that issue is playing out?
2: Yes, uh, we were seeing from uh, U.S. uh, politicians, uh, power players, such as Speaker Pelosi, who just spoke out against a diplomatic boycott of Beijing, 22. Olympics. Senator Mitt Romney also said a diplomatic boycott should happen. The U.S. government should not send any government officials to attend, but athletes should not be punished. They should go. And uh, of course, uh, the boycotting Beijing Olympics because uh, became part of the theme of the international religious freedom summit just uh, uh, yesterday. And uh, there was a side event that was held, and actually Reggie Little John. Uh, who is a director of the uh, women, uh, Women's Rights Without Frontiers, she basically championed a total boycott of the B- Beijing Olympics because she basically said, if there is a diplomatic boycott, the officials don't go, but we send the athletes for the Chinese government, it's going to be a bonanza. They can still say, look, you know, it's like it's left on the wrist while the genocide is happening. Still, China is welcoming American-European athletes to compete there. It's not much different The boycott, so there should be a strong boycott. And even today, actually, uh, Nuri Riquel, the vice chair of the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, penned uh, a powerful op-ed on foreign affairs. He basically championed that the Biden administration should seriously consider uh, removing or relocating the Beijing Olympics.
1: Wow. So that's a lot of momentum in just a few short days, really. So... Again, it's a dizzying pace of events, and I thank you, Alim, for making time for us. And I'm sure we'll be back again, and probably pretty soon, with the next wave of actions and reactions.
2: You are welcome, Paul. Thank you very much for having this
0: wonderful interview today. Thanks, Alim and Paul, for the lowdown on the U.S. response to China's repression of the Uyghurs. Now we turn to Southeast Asia. The Delta variant of the coronavirus has generated a dangerous spike in COVID-19 across the region. In no place is the situation quite as forbidding as Myanmar. It's a country that has long suffered from inadequate healthcare, but those shortcomings have been exacerbated by the upheaval and dysfunction caused by the military coup that took place on February the 1st. Doctors and nurses have walked out of public hospitals to protest the military takeover and hundreds of them have been arrested. Health facilities are now in chaos and the military has made matters worse by restricting oxygen supplies. The health system, it appears, is on the verge of collapse. Coffins are piling up at crematoria in Yangon. Now, to discuss this sorry state of affairs, I'm joined by a journalist in the city. Now, we won't be naming him for is safety. So please listen in. Well, thank you very much for joining us all the way from Yangon.
3: Uh, thank you very much for your, for your time and for having me.
0: Sure thing. So I want to ask you about the COVID situation in Myanmar. You know, we've been hearing lots of bad news in the past week or two, that infections are rising and that the health system is is essentially broken. Can you describe to me what the situation is like in Yangon now?
2: Yes.
3: Uh, actually, in Yangon, people just continuing their daily routine. What's significant is in the pharmacies, people, they are waiting for buying their medicines in the long queue. And also in the oxygen supplies, the oxygen plants, you know, in Yangon, it's very limited. Since the military, they control the oxygen plants and supplies for their
0: COVID-infected patients. Do you get the impression that the COVID infections are going up? Um, have you hear many cases in your neighborhood?
3: Yes, indeed. Actually, uh, next to my uh, apartment, uh, they are like age, uh, uh, 70 years old man. He, he just passed away. And we can hear every uh, single minute, we can hear the voice of their ambulance. In in my world, in my townships, we can see a lot of ambulance are busy okay. in the daytime.
0: I see, I see. Because
3: at the nighttime is the military, they control their, like a martial law. It's still on in every uh, part of the city.
0: So if people get sick in the night, they can't go to hospital. They cannot
3: uh, go to access the hospital or medical treatment. If they go to the hospital, the hospital they don't accept for their COVID patients, you know.
0: So what are people doing if they get sick with COVID, if they can't get proper health care?
3: They try to have the treatment at home to, to buy their medicines and to, to have their oxygen supplies from, from the social uh, network. And uh, they try to stay at home.
0: Now, I've seen pictures of people queuing up for oxygen and big lines of oxygen tanks. And you mentioned that uh, there's an issue with oxygen shortages. So can you tell me a bit about that? I mean, what authorities are saying about the oxygen situation, and and what the reality is?
3: The military leader he, he told we they have enough oxygen supply for the COVID uh, infected people and for for the patients, you know. But uh, people on ground they are struggling a lot uh, to have the oxygen. As the military, they grab the oxygen plants from the uh, from the ordinary people
0: so why do you think the the military is doing that
3: as as far as we we know that the military they they try to grab the oxygen plants for their families and uh, they try to uh, support for for their the hospital that they run they are running so people uh, like the ordinary people they are they don't have chances to to have the oxygen supplies, you know, ordinary clinic, they they don't have chances to uh, to accept their the patients.
0: I see that we've reported about the situation at uh, at cemeteries in Yangon or crema- crematoriums in in Yangon that are becoming very busy. Can you describe a little m- little bit more about the situation at the crematoriums?
3: There are four places for the crematorium, for the dead bodies in Yangon. But last two days ago, I've seen some pictures of, of the dead bodies and the situations in crematoriums in Yangon. It's a mess, you know, it's, it's uncontrollable. Hundreds of uh, dead bodies are waiting for the crematoriums. You know?
0: What do people think about how the junta has managed the COVID situation?
3: If we compare with the previous uh, civilian led government, it's totally different. You know, people, they, they are not hoping a lot from the military government people. They are, they're angered. It's growing. Uh, they don't f- feel safe, you know, and even their, the pharmacies, they, they, they close because they worry that uh, if the military, they will, they will grab the medicines, some pharmacy owners. I mean, they, they try to close their their pharmacies.
0: We know that a lot of doctors and nurses joined the civil disobedience movement against the military takeover and that this has left um, state-run hospitals understaffed. What do people think about that in you know in this current health crisis? Do people still support doctors and nurses for, for having done that?
3: yes uh, actually uh, the doctors and the nurses they are looking for the platform for assisting their their people you know for assisting their the civilians the people they they never blame uh to the doctors who join the cdm and uh the, the nurses as well and they understand the situations and they they keep going uh doctors and healthcare assistance, you know they understand the situations that to fight against the military dictatorship. so the doctors and uh, some some uh, nurses they say are uh, working for the people you know, uh, although they are uh, hiding uh, from the military government
0: now you know before we started recording you you mentioned that um, members of your family had come down with the flu so what did you do in that situation how did you get treatment
3: i just called to my to my friends he, he is a doctor and um he gave me the instructions for uh for curing their to to overcome the COVID uh uh infections or uh to overcome their the flu you know so uh f- for this moment i am uh i'm okay there are lots of people who are in difficulties but people, they are out of uh, connections with their uh, healthcare assistants, uh, with the doctors or some, somebody like this. Yeah, lots of people in the rural area, they have those uh, kind of uh, d- difficulties.
0: Do you think there's any reliable statistics about how many people are getting infected with COVID and how many people are dying?
3: Yes, in the previous time, uh, we, we believe in the government uh, announcements. I mean, their their civilians-led uh, government, their ministries of health and sports. But today, uh, there is no reliable. What can I say? Announcements for this statistic for this. This is uh, difficult to to confirm their the data and the number of the COVID uh, cases. You know.
0: And from what it sounds like at the at the crematoria, there are hundreds of people who are um, hundreds of coffins coming to the crematoria each 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 day. Is that right?
3: This is according to their civil societies or like of of aid workers or volunteers who are helping for uh, for those uh, cremations and and also their COVID uh, patients. You know.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for describing the COVID situation in Yangon for us, and I hope that uh, you and your family can all stay safe and healthy.
3: Thank you very much, Matt, for having me to join this podcast.
1: Thanks, Matt. I saw a new citizen video today from Yangon showing a desperate situation at a crematorium in the city. There were long queues of ambulances and funeral vehicles and lines of coffins awaiting cremation. It was really a, a sorry scene in a country that's had nothing but sorry scenes since that coup in February.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is very true. I saw the same video. I mean, there's been a sequence of these kinds of videos, but this was the most affecting one today, and it's a really heartbreaking scene. You know, and it strikes me that it shows this sort of gaping disconnect between what people can see on the ground in Yangon and the version of events that the hunter is struggling to put out there and you know i think everyone now assumes that the authorities are seriously underreporting the death toll as they have from like the aftermath of the coup and you know i saw today in the global new light of myanmar which is a state run sort of mouthpiece that has a long tradition of like alternate reality reporting it said that there are 165 dead from covid-19 on july the 15th but it's clear from these videos and all the witness accounts that we're hearing That crematoria are just struggling to cope with hundreds of dead bodies. As an aside, I saw that today's front page in the new light was that the world's biggest pagoda made of bamboo strips is going to be built in Myanmar. And the COVID toll in the nation was buried in a little box at the bottom of page two. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFAs coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast is edited by Eugene Huang. The series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.